What's it like being pregnant? It's good. It's scary. There's a person inside me. We don't like strangers. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast, a show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series Station Eleven. Every episode will be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and find out not only their approach to the characters and stories, but we'll also reveal special behind-the-scenes insights into production and the process. I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven. And I'm Angelica J. Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine site Vulture. Each week, Patrick and I will sit down with one of the many talented collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes, and characters. We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. It's going to get real. Today, we're joined by the brain behind this world, the powerful storyteller Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven, the novel. Needless to say, the series would truly not exist without Emily and her gigantic imagination. She's the person who put post-apocalyptic together with Shakespeare, together with Hollywood. And one of Station Eleven's executive producers, the brilliant Jessica Rose, who was a key player every step of production. And prep, and post, and still to this day, Jessica's an amazing creative producer and an executive producer of the show. To say the absolute least, I am very grateful to both her and Emily and indebted to their generosity and their boundless creativity. You know, it's a wild episode because it's really not in the book. Like, there's nothing like that. But Jeevan didn't feel different as a character. Do I have the same emotional reaction, response, when I put the book down on my nightstand, is that the same as when I watch an episode? I'm super excited to talk with you, Patrick, about episode nine, and not just because we see a crowning birth moment and um, some on-screen vagina Although I really appreciate that. And I feel we have to highlight that up top because it's, in my opinion, a very cool moment. Well, those things, (laughs) those things don't just happen. You have to insist on things like that happening when you're making a show. It needs to be planned from the beginning. But actually, uh, HBO Max and Paramount were both awesome on this front. Like Mm. no one ever said maybe we shouldn't do that. I don't know. I think that's really cool. I think that's super cool. I mean, I dug the whole winter solstice pregnancy birth vibes of this episode and finding out, you know, what really happened to Jeevan. But where I want to start with talking to you is about these two lines of dialogue that kind of stuck out to me in the episode in a good way. The first is when Jeevan says very honestly and in a very vulnerable fashion, I need help. And the other is when one of the pregnant women tell him, you're a healer. These are both in regard to the same character, but in some ways are at odds. What is the nature of a healer and how does this fit into the context of a pandemic or post-pandemic life for these characters? Can I throw one other phrase in there? Because I feel like it's like a triangle. Sure. It's the phrase, I'm not okay. Or the Mm. question, are you okay? Are you okay is actually the question uh, Tatiana asks him there before the birth sequence. 
Uh, and he doesn't answer it. And it's, instead he says, what's it like to be pregnant? He's already said, I need help. And then instead they hug. Later though, with Frank, he says, I'm not okay. And I don't know, these three things, asking for help is really hard. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I suck at it. So yes. <laughs> I'm real bad at it. And also like, I'm not okay a lot of times. That's another thing that's really hard to say. They're kind of like saying the same thing in a different way. Yeah, totally. But I think it's related to the pandemic very much in that this has been horrible. And if anything is clear now, if it wasn't before, we all need help. And there's times when none of us are okay. And it goes both ways. You can see someone not okay and help them if they can ask. So these ideas, I think, were swirling around the whole show all the way back to Jeevan and Kirsten meeting on the sidewalk in the beginning of the show. Kirsten grapples with it as an adult, too. So it plays out again and again. And I've found, I don't know about you in the pandemic. This just it happens every day in every relationship I have somehow. Oh, totally. I mean, this is a time we're living in where I think everybody is not okay. I'm just assuming when I ask people how they're doing, the answer may very well be, yeah, I'm not okay. Because I don't know anyone who's okay right now. I don't want to kind of go on, but uh, the second part of your question about the healer thing, critical to Jeevan's arc in the whole show, I think we've made a very deliberate choice to make him not know how to be in the MT in episode one when he runs up on stage. It's a little different than the book. We knew where we were going here in nine. Jeevan is becoming a better version of himself, I think, than he was in the before. He has the right instincts to be a healer. At the time in the before, when Arthur goes on, he has no skills. And he has very, very few skills by episode nine, but he has just enough to actually be helpful. Like it really actually matters that he's present. And as Terry says in this episode, the courage to be there, to bear witness to death, that's the job. And my brother died right in front of me. And you're already qualified courage to bear witness to death is the job. The courage to be there. That's the job of a healer. And, and, I, and he, he can do that and has done that now multiple times over the course of the show. He's, he's been present for the death of someone. One person, a stranger, one person he loved very much. I like that you highlighted that line that Jeevan hears. Um, I thought that was so beautiful because it doesn't only apply to being a healer or a doctor. I think it kind of applies to life in general. You kind of have to have the courage to bear witness to the hard shit, the ugly shit, which death is. And I was really touched by watching Jeevan's journey surrounded by all these pregnant women. (laughs) I thought it was really a fascinating visual and emotional representation of having hope. Because, you know, to have children, you must, in my mind, essentially have some hope for the world, for existence, for the people around you that you can give birth to this new life into a world that doesn't always make sense. And I thought, you know, this episode was especially beautiful because of this argument for hope and love and healing. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad you do. Shout out to Tara Nicodemo, who played Terry. She's uh, such a find in such an impossible role up there in Ontario. And she's actually married to our DP, Steve Cousins. But 
birth when you watch birth when you watch the whole thing you see uh how earned the life is when it comes out you see in real time <laughs> uh it's it's so hard and so much work to get the baby into the world i don't know it's easy to use babies i think as sort of like a giant flag symbolizing hope but i i thought it was important that we do birth in order to not just honor the daily heroism of that act that happens in the before and the after. The stakes are life and death in there. But what comes out is very important. And I think everyone is transforming in that space. So it just seemed like a great set piece for our show too. <laughs> like a, So Station Eleven to do Return of the Jedi, except instead of uh, the Millennium Falcon <laughs> going into the Death Star and evading TIE fighters <laughs> were doing this, like a whole shitload of births at the same time. <laughs> I was not expecting that comparison. That is why I love your mind, Patrick. I was not expecting Death Star reference, but, <laughs> but I appreciate that. But one thing I also just want to highlight when watching this episode is all the women around Jeevan and how immediately realized they feel and how complicated th they feel, even though we're really just meeting them for the first time. I was wondering if you'd like to highlight any of the people who were playing these roles. In fact, Angelica, I would. I would like to highlight every single one of them. Thank you for saying that. And, and also, shout out to Robin Cook, uh, our casting director on the ground in Toronto. This is in a pandemic, finding not just actors, but women who are willing to be this vulnerable uh, when it's an already a vulnerable time on the set and it's already a vulnerable time during a pandemic. Most of our moms in this episode were pregnant. A few of them weren't. There's some animatronic action going on. There's some uh, belly prosthetics going on. And then there's some real actually pregnant women. I won't tell you who's who, but <laughs> I do think I should just say these women's names because they were all so good and the vibe in there was so incredible too. Our rose was Kelsey Falconer, Judy, Chelsea Preston, Nancy is Rebecca Applepalm, Jennifer is Lee Lawson, Greta is Amanda Cordner, Evelyn is Megan Black, Gwen is Sam Kelly Iyama, our flora was Sabrine Rock. And last but not least, Laura is Tatiana Jones, who, man, there's another crazy find up there in Ontario for a one-episode experience, but without Tatiana and Tara, our Terry and our Lara. This episode wouldn't work without those two. They're incredible, mm -hmm. I think. Just nail it every scene. Thanks for letting me do that, though. Of course. I'm very indebted to those women, and we all are, who made the show to just throw themselves out there and make that scene. And on that point, what do you say we get into our interview with Jessica Rhodes and Emily St. John Mendel? Let's go in. Let's go land on the moon of Endor and do an interview. Endor. Okay, <laughs> sure. Let's do it. <laughs> Return of the Jedi reference. I am incredibly excited to introduce two great dames who are our guests today. Jessica Rose is not only an executive producer on Station Eleven, but she's also EP'd hits like Dirty John, The Affair, Utopia, and a personal favorite of mine, Sharp Objects. Jessica is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> and Emily St. John Mandel is the author of Last Night in Montreal, The Singer's Gun, The Lola Quartet, and one of President Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020, The Glass Hotel. 
In addition, she is the author of our source material of the novel, Station Eleven, which was also a finalist for the National Book Award and won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award. Emily also has a new novel, Sea of Tranquility, coming out in April of 2022. Emily and Jessica, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you. I'm very excited to dig into this conversation. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Thank you so much. This is the only podcast I listen to regularly, so it's a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, all right. (laughs) Thank you guys for coming on. I'm super excited to kind of dig into both of y'all's perspectives on the show and the nature of adaptation, which is actually where I want to start. Emily, one thing I was thinking about going into this podcast was how is it for Emily watching her baby, her novel, make such grand and sometimes minute changes as it comes to the screen? What is your relationship with adaptation as a novelist and how do you navigate witnessing your work take on a new form through other artists? So this might sound a little bit paradoxical, but... On the one hand, I always really cared about Station Eleven, the TV series, as it was being made. Like, it really matters to me that it's good. On the other hand, I did always have a sense of detachment. And that goes back to a literary festival I went to years and years ago. And there was a novelist there whose one of her novels had been made into a wildly successful movie that apparently was totally different from the book. And so there was this kind of like delicate question from the audience. They were sort of dancing around, like, how do you feel about the movie being really different from your book? And she was like, look, you sell those rights and they're gone. You know, like, it's not yours anymore. It's somebody else's. And I thought that was a really healthy approach. I think it's important to be a little bit detached with this stuff. And You know, my feeling at this point is that different mediums just have really different dramatic requirements. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, like what works on the screen might not work on the page and vice versa. So I always knew that the Station Eleven series would be very different from the book. And I was always okay with that. I love that you said that because I think sometimes artists in different mediums want to act like you can directly translate something, say, from a novel or graphic novel directly into film. I mean, think of it, for example, Sin City. When they adapted that graphic novel, they were like, we're literally taking frames from this comic and making it for the movie, which makes for, I'm sorry to say, a boring as fuck movie. Please move people. This isn't a comic book. Everything can change when you're moving from medium to medium. Which brings me to my next question for Jessica. I'm curious, you know, your relationship to the novel and how you thought through adaptation being a part of creating this story and bringing it to life on the screen. The hardest part of adapting any novel that people love is that you know that there are things that the audience that read the book, yourself included, are dying to finally see visually in front of them. So to me, there's the, on one side, maintaining the spirit and feeling of the book, and on the other, paying off the ravenous interest and intrigue to finally see those things realized in front of you. So I honestly, and I think Emily knows this, read Emily's novel after having read Patrick's first three scripts. So... I had an interesting relationship going back and forth between the series and the book. And then I listened to the audiobook on my way to set. 
Mm. I think it's the reason why I felt so firmly that we were maintaining the feeling of the book because I was having the feelings about the book while I was having the feelings about the scripts, as I was having the feelings about the book, as I was having the feelings about shooting the series. And so I was very aware just how my body felt emotionally, Mm. how I felt was very intact. And then at the other side, we're like, God bless Emily. She didn't have to create the actual graphic novel. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Yeah. So I think for us, it was always really important to balance the practical nature of having to create everything that Emily had dreamed up. Jessica, I have to ask, how do you know, A, what is the essence of this work I'm adapting? Like, how do you tap into that? And then also, B, how do you know when something needs to be pushed in a new direction for an adaptation or when it's better to hew closer towards the source text? It's a really good question. I mean, to me, it all comes down to the vision of the showrunner. And so that's foundational. I think it's interesting to hear Emily say what she heard another author say, because whatever the series becomes, whatever the movie becomes, it doesn't change her book. It doesn't change the the source material. So it allows a certain freedom of approach to say, these are two different things. And do I feel the same? Mm. Do I have the same emotional reaction, response when I put the book down on my nightstand Is that the same as when I watch an episode? What Hero did with Station Eleven and Jeremy and and Helen and, you know, Lucy, I think that there was the spirit of the novel. I I can't help but go back to, like, that to me. I hope it's the case for you, Emily. It always felt like they lived in the same universe. Yeah, that's absolutely the case for me. You know, there are major changes to the plot, but it does feel true to the spirit of the thing. And, like, that's much more important than, no, Kirsten can't go with Jeevan because that's not in the book. Like, that's, there's something forced about trying to hew completely to the plot of the novel. You know, as the author of the book, it absolutely does. It does feel true to me. Mm. For you, Patrick, what were the certain things you maybe knew you should avoid changing? Or, yeah, how did you figure out that philosophy for Station Eleven? Um, and what needed to be avoided versus what needed to be kept. I'm very curious about your thought process, narratively speaking. I think it's just a feeling, but it was always the same problem that we were trying to solve, which was we don't have Emily's author voice narrating the story. And so it's the work that her voice does to knit the people together. How do we take that problem and turn it into new episodes of story that we can show on screen. So, you know, putting Jeevan and Kirsten together, to me, both deepened characters I wanted to know better and see more of, but it also sort of, it felt like it was fair game because Jeevan came back at the end of the novel. So I knew on some level, Emily wanted to know more about where he ended up as well. And so that all felt very fair in terms of the the translation of one to the other. But my question is, is it fair, Emily? (laughs) You're you're here. Yeah, it was. Patrick, I've heard you talk a lot about, I guess, the power and the beauty of collaboration. You know, what an amazing thing it can be. And that's what I found myself thinking of with that particular plot point. 
because when I'm writing a novel, it's just me. Like, you know, it's one brain trying to come up with a plot. Oh, yeah. And it's not completely solitary. Like, I, you know, I have three editors. You know, they vastly improve the book. But they're vastly improving my book. But if you have a room full of people, I feel like there are just more opportunities to have those moments of, wait a minute, why don't Kirsten and Jeevan stay together? And that solves 80 plot problems. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's great. I wish I'd thought of that. Um, yeah. It felt absolutely true. There was a pitch from Nick Hughes in the writer's room uh, real, real early. It's great. It's um, really good. Tremendous uh, end results that led us all the way to episode nine and Jeevan's quest to become a doctor. I want to switch gears a little bit because one thing that I think is a little interesting and probably interesting for people listening to the podcast, reading the book, watching the show and all that is, you know, you wrote something about a pandemic before the pandemic. We're now in year three of. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? It's been a pleasure, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm very curious for everybody, but I want to start with you, Emily. How has your relationship to this book and the things you were thinking about and turning over in your mind, how has your relationship to this story changed through the pandemic and now actually experiencing one and seeing how it's really highlighted how important things like collaboration and art are to healing? You know, something I like about our present moment, which, you know, find these tiny silver linings (laughs) where you can because there sure aren't many. It hasn't dissuaded me in any way from that idea that art is incredibly important, which, you know, that was the whole driving force of the Station Eleven novel is that survival is insufficient. And I love that we see that now, that, you know, there are bookstores that have a hard time fulfilling all the e-commerce orders because people are turning to books and, you know, people are streaming and listening to music. And it is wonderful to see how important art is. You'd think that having written Station Eleven might have prepared me for a real pandemic, (laughs) but uh, not so much. Um, I think I was as blindsided as everybody else. When I compare the actual experience to the book, there are things that I would do differently if I were writing that book now. But Mm. there are also things that no longer ring true just because the world's changed, where You know, what I find myself thinking about is the scene in the book where Clark arrives in the Severn City Airport. Everybody gathers beneath this TV monitor playing CNN or something, and they all believe what the newscaster is saying. That's 2011. (laughs) That's not 2021, 22. You know, that would no. We are in a much more fractured media landscape now than we were then. Oh, yeah. It's like, but that made sense when I wrote the book. It just doesn't anymore. And then something that had never really occurred to me for all the research I did into pandemics is that there are these weird in-between periods. And we're kind of in one now in a way where I think I'd thought of the condition of being in a pandemic as something of a binary state. You're either in or you're out. Mm. It's a pandemic or it's not a pandemic. (sighs) But what if it's a pandemic and you're triple vax and everybody around you is getting Omicron, but none of their cases are very severe? Like, what's the risk calculus? (laughs) That kind of half in, half out feeling is, you know, it's something I just hadn't thought about. It's incredibly destabilizing. It makes our risk calculations really difficult and complicated. And yeah, I I guess the less long-winded way of saying that is that living through a pandemic is just more complicated than I think I'd imagine when I wrote Station Eleven. Mm -hmm. 
Although I'm very over year three of this. I'm <laughs> losing oh my, my mind. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's too long. Ooh, yeah. I just need to hold a moment for us to just be like, wow, we're in year three of this. We're in year three. Yeah. Year yeah. three. You and eight billion other people. But to piggyback on something you were saying, Emily, I really want to kind of get into with Jessica, you know, obviously Episode nine was the second episode you guys shot when you came back. Is that correct? Yeah. Like, how was it navigating the pandemic shooting these episodes? I I just can't. It sort of blows my mind thinking that you guys pulled this off. And I just like what surprised you having to make this journey? What were you not expecting? How did you just get through the day and make sure to hit your marks and Jessica, before you answer, let me just add to that. Specifically, I think in 109, the challenge of the birth sequence. Let's get you over to the beds. We're all set up. Oh, that was a big one. You're doing really well. Did you find Nancy? Yeah, we're coming. Oh, this is hard. We just gotta keep breathing. I think everything that was hard about shooting was happening yeah. inside Habermakers. And so that like, yeah, go. Well, it's interesting to be talking about this specific thing during this specific episode also, because I think a lot of people look at producing in a lot of ways. And I, especially in the last five years, have really just embraced that my approach to producing is being a mom. It's so much like being a parent because the job was how do we make this show and keep everyone safe and keep everyone protected while doing the thing? And I think it was very much like so many parents during the pandemic, which is you just had to compartmentalize your own fear and keep walking forward like it was okay. The weird part is I do believe that art connects us. I do believe that art heals us. And watching the audience response to the show, people having cathartic emotional responses in year three of the pandemic, accessing these things that they, most of, some of them parents, some of them just caretakers and caregivers and survivors themselves have like compartmentalized in a hole and been like, yeah, 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 I'll get to that feeling later because I got a job to do. Mm-hmm. And now they're sitting down and watching Station Eleven and I think they're accessing those emotions. And the reason I think I knew on some level that would happen is because that was us. Because we were like, we're creating art. We're creatives. We're artists. People are coming together to make this really hard thing in a very difficult time, but it's healing us to do so. I actually think those of us who got to make Station Eleven were like a couple months ahead of doing some healing work. I think it's because I've been able to do so much emotional work with these people around me. And so making episode nine at the time we did there were a lot of challenges. It was the most actors we'd had on a set at the time. You know, we were really trying to keep the crew and the cast as small as possible as we figured out how to do this. And so 
one of the things that Patrick understood so early, which is that the experience that he had had in his children coming into the you know world and the experience I had 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 not been on television. I'm not going to say it's more realistic or it's more grounded or it's more any of those things, but we wanted it to, There, there's a moment where Laura says, I can be in labor and hell, you know, just this idea that like, yeah, 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 this is going to happen for a while. <laughs> I'm a functional, like I, I made, made granola for my kids and then went back into labor and then I got one off to school, you know, like, like they, but so anyway, to create that, we knew we needed a lot of things. And first of all, we knew we needed a few women who had actually given birth. We had a lot of people involved in the, in the show who maybe weren't as familiar with what the experience was of going into labor. And so we needed to surround them. I, I was there. We had a birth consultant. But so the first just frankly practical challenge, we made the call but that we, we wouldn't have live babies. And I think that that was the hardest call. We were debating it, but our line producer, David Nixay, just looked point blank into the Zoom and said, I think the question is, Patrick, if this were your baby, would you bring it? And I was just like, that was like line producer judo. But it's also <laughs> like, that is deeply true. I would not allow my baby to come in, in this moment, not because it's not safe on set, but, but just all the things like Jess was saying. But we really were like, okay, now what? You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. animatronicbabyland.com. <laughs> Welcome to Babyland. Um, but it was important for us. We did make the decision. We wanted to find a few real pregnant actresses, which is also fun. Like there's a time in the universe that the world tells actresses that they're not valuable. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was really fun to say to our casting directors in Canada find the most amazing women you love working with who happen to be expecting a child, you know? And, and then, and then, but then we had to play the the timing game, like how, pregnant, <laughs> right. so it was, oh my oh, God. Some Kelly who played Gwen, it, we wouldn't have gotten her if she wasn't uh, as pregnant yeah. as she was because she was like, oh, I guess I'm not working for the next uh, 12 months. So yeah. she's like way out of our league for that. But we got her because of that, and and it mattered so much in the it episode. When so she's so much. good, honestly, protecting those women emotionally, physically, you know, that's what I think. That's what those days in Habermackers were really about: was how do we create a safe environment, creatively, emotionally, mm -hmm. physically, for a lot of really pregnant women, a lot of women who were playing pregnant, a lot of them who were showing intimate sides of themselves and being asked to uh, represent things that aren't usually represented. Yeah. Another thing that I think is incredibly beautiful that might not have happened had we not been filming when we did was that Hamesh was a new father. Hamesh yeah. had just had mm. a baby. And the craziest part about it was because of how quickly and whatever, it was two months prior. And so he still had a wide-eyed, <laughs> you know, reaction to it as anyone he would. He had just had that experience, I think. Yeah. And because he and his partner had to do it in COVID, I think he really understood there was this sense memory of how do I support these women when it's a really scary world around us? And yet this moment is very small. And 
It has to be because they are doing the only thing that is going to save us all eventually, you know? And so there's something, it was a very um, emotional and I think meta episode to be shooting. I'm really glad we got into the birthing dynamics because that was our moment of magic for this episode. Yes. Retro retconning. That was the moment of magic. Everyone that was, we, it just came out because obviously who does not want to talk about birthing? I do because I find pregnancy very interesting. But before we leave this part of this discussion, I'm very curious to hear, Emily, what were your thoughts watching episode nine? Not just, you know, seeing the crowning moment and uh, the intensity of birthing, which I love, (laughs) but I've mentioned it like three times. But I'm curious for you, like experiencing this episode and seeing how different Jeevan is as a character from the one you created, but also still very much a part of who you created. I'm curious, how did you experience this episode? What feelings did it bring up for you since it's something that, from what I've heard, is not in the book? Yeah, you know, it's a wild episode in that way because it's really not in the book. Like, there's nothing like that. But Jeevan didn't feel different as a character. And in the context of the show, I was just so moved by this episode. You know, partly for the same reason Jeevan was. There's that moment when... The woman gives birth and he says, it's so beautiful. I was like, it's beautiful. It really is. I was really moved. Ah! Here we go. Ah! Ah! It's beautiful. That's beautiful. There you go. Oh. So, you know, in the series, he's a little bit more hapless than he is in the book, just in the sense that, you know, in the book, he's training to be an EMT. He knows CPR when he gets up on stage. In the series, he does not. And there's something kind of moving in the context of the series about this moment where this guy who always wants to help but never has the tools, never knows how to do it. Like, he's actually finally being trained. Somebody's like, this is what you this is the, This is his training day, yeah, literally. exactly, and exactly. I, I think this is exactly why we took it out of one, because right. we knew we were coming here. That makes like, sense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I loved it. It was, it was great. And, you know, in the book, there is such a long gap of time where you don't see Jeevan. So I guess partly why even though this episode was so far outside the plot of the book, partly why it still rang true to me was he could absolutely have had that moment in the book. You know, we didn't see so much of his life after the collapse. I also, we get to a version of what is in the novel in the very last moments of episode nine. We were kind of aiming for the glimpse you showed us of like, he made it, he became himself and became a doctor healer and he has a family and that was the idea you had yeah yeah so we were just pointed at the same bullseye we right. just did sort of the lead up to it a little bit different yeah one of my final questions for y'all is something that you know i was thinking about with regards to adaptation is that obviously for a novelist you have your words and those words can bring about so much for whoever's reading With making a TV show, one of the most powerful tools, I think, is sound, both when it's used, when it isn't used. And this episode had a very interesting use of not seeing 
Jeevan be absolutely mauled by a wolf, but we hear it. And I'm really curious to kind of talk through, you know, Jessica and Patrick. How did you guys come to that decision with the mauling and the use of sound? Because it seems very important in this episode. Well, Station Eleven is an unusually conceptual TV show. We sort of built the idea of the show before we made the show. And one of the ideas of the show comes directly also from the novel conceptually, which is what if instead of showing that bartender three weeks down the road, we did a dot, 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 like Emily did at the end of that sentence, the very memorable sentence in her novel. What if we use dot, dot, dots to not look at pain, but to acknowledge that it is real, but not um, exploit it as a way to keep people entertained, honestly. And so Jeevan needed to get hurt out there. The audience needed to know it happened. But like everything, we're interested in the wreckage and then the recovery of what's left that has any value. So we're not interested in the explosion Mm. on the space station. We're interested in the busted, broken space station after the loss. We're not interested in the flu. We acknowledge that it happened but we're interested in the wreckage and the repair after. So we didn't need to see the wolf. (laughs) We're also interested in the witness to the trauma. Like, we're not interested in the plane crash. We want to see Kirsten watch the plane crash. We don't see the attack. We see Kirsten respond to the attack. And I think for me in the moments, especially when you're like, more wolf, you know, sound-wise, to me, I always flew out of the episode into young Kirsten's mind of the worst case scenario. Like what happened to him? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And then we got to come right back into Jeevan's story. But to me, like that was always a POV shift of like a little girl out there who's worst case, you know, what is happening to him and why didn't he come back? And in that moment when you don't know, it could be whatever it is. I I would also say that was maybe she was hoping it was that a little because that meant he didn't betray her and leave mm-hmm. her. Yeah. Yeah. I love that ambiguity, by the way, that just, she doesn't know. And it seems plausible to her that he got sick of being a babysitter and left. It's kind of heartbreaking. Was it plausible to you as a viewer? Yeah, it was because he's so clearly conflicted and he's traumatized. And you know what? Like looking after this kid who isn't his own, who absolutely needs him, for whom he's not really well prepared. But that, that's a big ask, you know, for anybody. And who he's tied the death of his brother to, because that's survival. Exactly. Right. The scene when he's walking away and Frank's ghost says, what are you doing? And Jeevan doesn't answer. To me, he's leaving. Yeah. You know, that, I, I, I don't think he knew, he, he, you know, he found the book, but I think like he's, there's a deep part inside of him that wants to just walk away, right? Then it might have. And then he says on the radio, um, I'm on my own. I'm alone. Which, yeah, I'm alone, which feels like a wish in that moment. Mm. That's the reason that the, the Tatiana comes for him, though, too, and never checks because he, 
he revealed something emotional that actually made it dangerous for himself. That happens. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, this ambiguity that was mentioned is a testament to the strength of this adaptation, because I think a lot of times when people adapt things, they want to explain everything like, oh, well, this wasn't explained in the book. How can we put our mark on it? We have to explain all the gaps. But some of the most beautiful moments in television or film are those gaps, those gray areas, that ambiguity. And I think that wouldn't have been pulled off if it wasn't for the people I'm looking at right now, both the novelists who brought this story into the world and these artists who decided to put their own mark on it. I'm so happy we got to have this conversation. It was really, I don't know, it made my heart feel very full, to be honest, and I needed that today. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad. Me too. It was so lovely. It was lovely. This has been great. Thank you, guys. Thank you both, Jessica and Emily, for coming on and opening up your hearts to our little audience and talking about the making of this show and where it's situated in your own reverie. I think this means a lot to people because we're all just trying to process some heinous-ass shit we've been dealing with for three years. Yeah. Um, but the only way through this is together, in my opinion. So Hell I'm yes. glad we could have a little bit of our journeys together today. So thank you, guys. Me too. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you for writing the novel Station Eleven. Emily. Thank you for adapting it. You did a good Aww. job. Big deal in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to say thank you again to novelist Emily St. John Mandel and producer extraordinaire Jessica Rhodes. That was a really amazing conversation. And hearing them both unpack both their relationship to what it means to adapt and adaptation, as well as navigating a pandemic you wrote about but are now living through was super fascinating. Yeah, I'm very grateful that they both came on and came on together. I think fans of the book will love to hear some of Emily's takes on the changes and her reaction. But I also love that conversation because you know that thing when you're watching TV and you see a hundred producers come up and you're like, who's what? Who are these people? Yeah, <laughs> Jessica is an executive producer. She's in this category of creative executive producer. That creative is a real creative. Totally we could not have made. Station 11 without Jessica. Producers matter quite a lot in making your TV. And so I hope it was a little demystifying, actually, to hear her take on some things. Yeah, I think it definitely was. And I really loved her perspective on the relationship to being a mother and a producer and bringing that experience into her work, because that's strength right there. That is something you should bring into your work. I love that. I did want to say, though, I as she was saying that, I'm, I'm a dad, and so I knew what she meant. Every dad has a mom inside of him, and every mom has a Aww. dad inside of her. But also, everyone who doesn't have kids, you can see the same instinct being pulled out of them at work when you're making a show, the instinct to take care of, protect, herd, tough love sometimes, hugs sometimes, the parenting gene in all of us, the the feeling of reaching out and subordinating your own needs for someone else's, it draws it out of you when you're, when you're making something together. And it just did even more so because of the pandemic, I think, in our case. Definitely. And I think that's a good note to end on. 
That's all for this episode. Thanks, as always, to everyone who's listening. Don't forget to tune in next week when we chat with Dan Romer, our lead composer, and David Eisenberg, our lead editor, about our series finale and capturing the world of Station Eleven on screen. I can't believe we made it to the finale. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on that one, Angelica. Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Angelica Jade Bastien and me, Patrick Somerville. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixell. Our engineer extraordinaire is James I Like to Camp Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Foss. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. You can catch up on all the episodes of Station Eleven on HBO Max. 